Okay, so this is my second go at this. I'm going to try and be as quick as possible because I'm running out of disk space and also nobody wants to listen to a long rambly solo episode and what I'm also going to try and do now is not just savour things that I said in my previous take that I abruptly stopped two minutes in after I felt it wasn't really popping. So basically there's been this article published by New Socialist in the last couple of days called Labour Members Aren't the Problem by someone called Nikki Hutchinson which is an alias. I honest to God don't know who the person is, but it's some kind of Westminster insider of sorts. And um, they have published an article that makes the case that a spate of recent interventions aimed at Labour members risks deflecting attention from a, from a rightward shift of the Parliamentary Party. Now, I boosted this article pretty heavily when it came out because it articulated something that I've been feeling for the last few months, which is essentially kind of let down by the leadership of the left. I mean, obviously the thing is, since we lost the leadership, there's nothing kind of concrete to lead. Everything's kind of dissipa dissipating. So there's no, like, official leadership, but there are people who are kind of, like, prominent, you know, the big beasts of the left to use the old kind of British politics terminology. Um, and the kind of the big beasts, <laughs> if you want to call them that, who um, are advocating this particular strategy of, I think, effectively compliance with Starmer's new leadership, uh, who are criticised in this article include Owen Jones, the commentator, we can get back to Owen in a minute, and Andrew Fisher, the um, former Corbyn advisor, kind of left-wing policy wonk who wrote Labour's 2017 and 19 manifestos, uh, and also this has kind of been a strategy, um, kind of, yeah, I feel, of conciliation that has been recently advocated by John McDonnell, both with Keir Starmer now that he's the leader of the party, such as McDonald's recent interview where he praised Starmer's appalling response to the crisis and said that Keir is a socialist. So this article came out on September the 11th, and, uh, you know, let me tell you, this was a vicious terrorist attack uh, on the persons of Jones and Fisher on the scale of the 9-11 uh, attacks on the Twin Towers, uh, I would I would say. Um, no, I, I don't think it was at all. Uh, in fact, I think it was a very accurate depiction of um, the strategy that they have uh, pursued recently, and that I think John McDonnell has pursued, as I forgot to say it a minute ago, not just recently, but also in the latter days of Corbyn's leadership of the party. Why I felt this article really spoke for me was that, so I, I was looking through today um, Owen Jones's last few months of columns. Yeah, you know, I didn't like obviously <laughs> read read the whole thing of all of them, but I don't think you could say that a single one of them, the focus of it, is criticism of Starmer's leadership. And I think, like, what's happening, what Starmer is doing, is, you know, it's something that should be really concerning to people on the left, because we know 
that the last time that the left kind of caved in and the right took over the party completely and fully, as I think is in the process of happening again, and they, <laughs> you know, crimes against humanity ensued. Like, the Labour rights are essentially some of the most vicious, evil, detestable people. Maybe not, not every single one of them, but really, like, you know, I, I think, like, just as a political tradition, it is just poison. And Tony Blair took what was there, you know, the, 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 the Ernie Bevin tradition, which is already, I think, pretty fucking retrograde and maybe sanded off some of the uglier kind of more old labor edges but then brought in this whole new veneer of just ruthless sneering capitalism just unvarnished intensely relaxed pure devotion to market forces and then just upped what was there with bevan and with the labor right all that time but just that the, the, the you know, just the war crimes, man. Just, just literally what happened in Iraq. You know, what, what was it? Something our good friend Luke Savage was saying on uh, Michael and Us that I just listened to today. He, he said something like, "What thirty-seven million people at a conservative estimate were displaced by the war on terror." You know, that's not even getting into how many were killed. Which I know that people have the um, maybe less conservative um, a million person figure for Iraq but when you factor in the rest of war on terror and so you know what can you define as coming within that that's an extraordinary amount of just destruction and pain that <laughs> happened because the Labour Party was taken over by a bunch of right-wing ghouls so I don't think we can afford to be sanguine and act as if this is just business as usual. There's a straight line Corbyn through to Starmer. And as this piece says, and a, and a person quoted in the Observer today that I'll get into in a minute said as well, Starmer's fucking 10 pledges that Owen keeps... Uh, I'm drinking tea, by the way. I'm not steaming drunk. Yeah, Owen keeps going on about the 10 pledges that Starmer had, which were all on the surface quite good. But as me and Geraint went through each of them, there was some lawyerly language in there that meant he could wriggle out of whatever superficially leftist commitment that was in there. That should be leftish, not leftist. And that thing he said about, you know, no illegal wars, you know, like I say, not worth the paper it was written on. Fucking putting someone like, I think it's what, Wayne David? ultra hawk there's a few of them actually in, in in the foreign policy i mean nandy herself as foreign secretary uh, you know she she is gonna do bad things in the world if <laughs> she is uh, if she becomes foreign secretary in a labor government i'm i'm sorry but like god her traje the trajectory she's on is just towards like uh, another round of bloodshed in the middle east i think and I, you know, I'm not being alarmist about this because I think it's all there when you look at the last time that the Labour right were on an unstoppable momentum. That's been an annoying thing about the last few years, hasn't it? Momentum is a word that quite often comes up in politics and every time that one of us says it, we have to be like, oh, well, that's ironic. But I digress. People like Andrew Fisher and Owen Jones, these are the two people who are directly criticised in this piece. I think it has some, yes, it has some criticisms of McDonnell as well. And I would say, you know, as Owen himself has been protesting, that in some of the major strategic mistakes of 
Labour's last few years, such as the lean into Remainism, yeah, McDonnell was more of a decisive force in that than Owen Jones or Andrew Fisher, although they did go along with it. But these are two, like, in many ways quite admirable people. Owen, his whole thing is that, you know, he thinks that left-wing policies are good and doesn't think that everyone hates them and he is out there all the time making those arguments and you know that's very worthy when he lost faith in Corbyn's leadership obviously I was very critical of him like me and Kieran we did that Toad Hall episode which it's mean but I do think that was a great title and then it had the Wind and the Willows artwork and uh, but yeah, apparently around that time we tweeted, we are 100% an Owen, anti-Owen Jones podcast. Like, I'm sure that was Kieran, but, you know, at the time that was true, maybe not 100%. But then after that, that's the meme, isn't it? But then after that, I don't know, I did think we treated him really unfairly. You know, he'd got a lot of stick for, su- for supporting Corbyn. He has to be around these tosses all, all the time, uh, I suppose. So I thought it was, you know, I maybe began to sympathise with how the forces telling him that he was destroying the Labour Party could maybe get to him I kind of came around on him I thought he was doing a lot of good work and he did like take on a more aggressive tone like from 2017 to to 19 maybe I don't know I like I thought a lot of what he was doing was great I thought he was picking a lot of great fights and you know of course his work on trans rights is admirable uh, of course like he's one of the the loudest advocates in the mainstream media. I don't know, I met Owen properly once, like, kind of, it was like a left Twitter drinks thing at the end of 2018, and I said to him, you know, come on the podcast, man, we'd love to have you on. Uh, It would piss off all the worst people, I remember that's what I said, and, you know, he seemed up for it then. I kind of, I DM'd him just, you know, a couple of times. I'm sure it wasn't too many times, but there's no evidence now because they obviously suspended my account but uh i i did ask him to come on and i never got a response but you know you can't you can't hold that against someone too much you know there's people i like a lot who for whatever reason haven't wanted to come on the show uh, and then there's Andrew Fisher, who I'm, I, I mean, I've had no kind of like personal experience of, but I think like someone who wrote The Fall of Many, Not the Few Manifesto is someone to be admired in a lot of ways. And there was his document that he wrote. Yeah, it was a sort of very wonky kind of book that he wrote a few years ago, which had some interesting ideas in it as well. And that was sort of pre-Corbyn and he worked for McDonald as well as as did Owen Jones so you know you, these guys are kind of coming from that I guess yeah friends and seeing eye to eye on a lot of these like political matters that maybe are up for debate within the left I'd always had plenty of respect for Andrew Fisher because of being the architect of a lot of the best things about the recent Labour Party you know policy wise and he's written recently on open democracy about how Uh, The first year of Corbynism was really fucked up by the fact that the shadow cabinet just wouldn't let any of the highly popular Corbynite policy direction come through. And then thankfully, when they all resigned in the 2016 coup, I do kind of think that that coup was the decisive factor in how Corbyn never became prime minister. I think it did kind of just like do that little bit to add that kind of... uh, 
a tinge, as Angela Smith might say, to his leadership. But yeah, it did provide some benefits to the Labour Party, such as the fact that the kind of policies that Andrew Fisher was working on could come through. But he was a big advocate, and I'm going by Gabriel Pogrand and Patrick Maguire's book, left out here which i i've read me and Geraint are going to do a full episode of it in a, on it in a couple of days um but you know there's a lot of interesting stuff in there i don't know what's true and what's not i'm sure the two of them would say oh it's all true like we backed it up it's all legit but there are some things in there that before the book even came out you know didn't uh it turned out not to be 100 percent true so you know all this stuff about like internal labor internal not even internal labor party politics office politics uh internal leader of the opposition's office politics it's very hard to kind of like pick a side when you haven't been working for jeremy corbyn in his office for the last few years even a high-flying podcaster like myself has a much more detached experience of Corbynism than that so you know I don't know uh I, I you know why why would I hold the fact that Seamus Milne uh chillaxes too much against him you know the accusations that people have put out there against Kerry Murphy uh in terms of their kind of managerial style I think are, are, are much more serious they include accusations of bullying and so on there's nothing comparable that people have said about Seamus Milne but I will say that about the two, the, the official version of history that seems to have been written from all the kind of press briefings for the last couple of years is that basically Seamus Milne and Kerry Murphy fucked up the Corbyn project. And reading Left Out, I'm just left wondering, like, how the fuck is their political judgment any worse than, uh, than Andrew Fisher's, who is, you know, a big anti-Milne guy, big anti-Kerry Murphy person. And it seems, and from what I've heard, on the grapevine is like that a lot of it did come down to brexit divisions that he really thought that labor needed to lean into the remain thing and milne and murphy didn't agree with that and according to left out what this came down to this descended into in the 2019 election when seamus milne had kind of well, the way they put it is that he was no longer uh, like at the centre of the campaign. He was just one of many voices in the room. Uh, so again, like I, it's a bit rich to blame Seamus Milne fucking everything up when he'd been kind of sidelined between the successful 2017 and the unsuccessful 2019 election. But Fisher had taken by this point, according to the book, of essentially j just depriving Milne and people he saw as associated with Milne in the Milne camp, in the Murphy camp, or in the kind of, like, Lexity camp, to some extent. Although I think it's said that, you know, Ian Lavery got some of his information. <laughs> he didn't share the manifesto with Milne. He didn't share the grid of what, what they're doing each day in the campaign with Milne. Uh, you know, I think that if indeed this is what happened, that's like disgraceful and unprofessional behavior and Seamus Milne receives more than enough public criticism as of course does Kerry Murphy and I don't see why it's okay to constantly in every publication under the sun go after how they have called certain strategic matters but but it's not okay to do the same to Fisher in a small kind of underground left-wing online magazine
um, obviously some, something that's mentioned in here, uh, in, in, in the article, is that this kind of internal Corbyn's office bloodletting kind of started at the before the 2019 election. It was during Labour conference. Andrew Fisher's resignation letter was leaked to the press, which kind of it was a whole litany of complaints about, you know, foreign policy seemed to be a jab at Milne for being too anti-imperialist. So I, you know, again, that's a McDonald thing, but maybe if I have time before my computer <laughs> fucking dies, uh, we can get into... It also had, you know, talked about the unprofessionalism and the inhumanity. I thought was very melodramatic. Of, uh, but again, I don't. I he's been there. I haven't. So that's a bit, you know, not for me to say how the office was run. And you know, I've seen some people like defending this by saying, well, Andrew Fisher didn't want it leaked, and you know, that fair enough. Maybe he didn't. But some of them have said it was leaked by his factional opponents. Like that's fucking bullshit. That's like that is clearly. <laughs> just absolute bullshit because his uh you know i don't think like too many people on the labor right would have had access to uh you know such a sensitive uh intra-office document for a start uh, and also nobody nobody said that like in in left out it's uh speculated that it was niall suku who is the guy in that meme where corbyn looks like he's about to deck someone and niall is holding him back and again, according to Left Out, Suku hated Seamus Milne. He just despised him with the hatred of a thousand burning suns. Like, Labour had this thing, it was like uh, something before privilege. And uh, he was like, oh, that's rich coming from Seamus Milne. And it's like, yeah, well, it's, you know, it's just freaking true, isn't it? So what? And yeah, he was very much on the, like Fisher, on the pro-EU side. So he was, and he, you know, he was on the left of the party, so he was not, a, by any definition, a factional opponent of Fisher's. And he was not even a factional opponent of him within internal Corbyn's office stuff. They both didn't like Seamus Milne at that point and they both were on the pro-EU side. And of course, you know, maybe it wasn't Suku, but that is what literally every account of it that I've heard <laughs> has said, including, again, some stuff that is Tap's nose, suggestively, on the grapevine. Immediately, like the day after New Socialist published this article, there was this article that came out in The Observer. Obviously, The Observer comes out on Sunday, but this came out on Saturday night, like all of their big online scoops, and it included quotes from one Andrew Fisher. Admittedly, I do not think these were, these were not actually his words, he didn't say must, that's the headline must, you know, Labour must adopt a pro-EU position, then there'll be 40 points ahead in the polls, that, that must, but you see in Observer headlines. But, yeah, the headline is, Labour left must work with Starmer or risk, quote, return to tomb, says Corbyn advisor. Divisions are emerging in the left wing of the party over how to ensure the ground it gained isn't lost under the new leader. Fisher here basically said that Starmer's 10 leadership election pledges, there we go, it's the old shibboleth of, like, these fucking vacuous pledges, which included commitments to abolishing tuition fees, taxing the wealthy, didn't Labour rule out tax increases recently or something? It's something that provoked Paul Mason to say that high taxes are, like, undialectical or, or something. <laughs> Fisher continues that that's still basically our policy programme. Like, I, I, I just, you know, is it? 
because Starmer's team have consciously said we're not going to like announce too many policies like too far in advance of the next election so right now it is just kind of a policy vacuum but you know that was the mantra with a lot of stuff when Corbyn first became leader and it was like well it is it's the policy for now isn't it that like we're gonna put benefit sheets in the stocks but <laughs> Labour wasn't gonna uh, you know after all the people resigned in 2016 gradually a lot of those policies dropped to the wayside and that's gonna happen with Starmerism as well and you can bet that while they're staying silent they're developing all these really fucking right-wing policies and they're really shit policies that don't go any of the length needed to address like the glaring issues in our society and he talks about back in the day the labor left were uh, shouting from the sidelines thinking we're and now we're all thinking we're back in our sealed tomb we're not in the shadow cabinet we're not on the front bench we're hated by the leadership we're not relevant we're not in that situation he says like we, we fucking are you can clearly see some people think that is the default setting so we should go back to that i think that's a miscalculation and there's a quote as well from a former Corbyn aide, which I think echoes... No, sorry, not a former Corbyn aide, a former aide to somebody in the Shadow Cabinet. So presumably somebody who worked for a left-wing MP, who maybe is no longer in the Shadow Cabinet or something, who knows. But some are now saying, don't worry, it's fine. We've shifted the conversation to the left. Starmer isn't as bad as Tony Blair. We've still got the 10 pledges, said one former frontbench advisor. I think that's the most dangerous line the left could take. We need to own the fact we've lost the party and have a plan to win it back. I don't mean we should be launching a leadership challenge. That's ridiculous. But the campaign group has been very quiet and there is no leadership. You know, and I think that echoes the point that was being made in um, the article in New Socialist. And that is just not a position that is getting a lot of traction in the mainstream media. Like I say, Starmer is clearly pursuing a conscious strategy of moving the party to the right, of not making any left-wing noises, of appeasing the right-wing media, and trying to appeal to socially conservative voters, right-wing on all sorts of different levels. And he's doing it deliberately and nakedly. And in a similar way, Owen Jones, by not kind of just dedicating a column to saying that this is what's happening, you know, he's pursuing a strategy as well. You know, it may be honourable, the idea that the left needs to stay relevant within the new regime, but it is a conscious, deliberate strategy. The idea that that is somehow beyond critique, you know, I do not buy that at all. What he always says is, well, like, I advocated Remain because John McDonnell was advocating Remain. Corbyn advocated Remain because John McDonnell was advocating Remain. And, you know, Owen did that interview with my friend George Eaton recently, where George's interpretation of the book was that if it has a hero, it's John McDonnell. And I just think, like, after the last couple of years, like, why? Why, like, what, what has he done that's particularly great? Like, I mean, on every issue I can think to mention. I mean, maybe he was developing a radical policy agenda, but all he did when he went out there over, 
Jeremy's head and made these kind of tough noises like, oh yeah, fuck Russia, we gotta nuke Russia, fucking like, you know, whatever. Uh, no, we can't kick Alistair Campbell out of the party because people have made this bullshit argument that we're not expelling anti-Semites even though we are and therefore we should suspend all the other rules and not kick out people who are fucking up the party for clear violations of its most basic fucking rules. He'd always come out and contradict whatever Corbyn said. And you know, at the time, I, a lot of the time, I'm, you know, I sometimes worried about what his strategy was, but I, I kind of thought, well, maybe it's the good cop, bad cop thing with Jeremy. That's bizarre, obviously, because McDonald is like a hard fucking bastard and Corbyn's the nicest man in politics. So why the fuck would you do it that way around? Like, McDonald should have been taking even more extreme fucking like when Seamus Milne came out and said that totally true stuff to the the press lobby that they totally suspended all standard protocol in British journalism by naming Seamus as the Labour spokesman who said it. When he said all that stuff about, oh, the security services fucking just bullshit us all the time, basically. Just amazing stuff. That's what I fucking supported Corbynism for. Getting that shit into the political mainstream. McDonald should have come out and said, yeah, fuck, fuck them, fuck them. I, you know, I will abolish fucking MI5. (laughs) That's the way he should have provided a counterweight to Corbyn. But every time he did that, especially in retrospect, every time it made Corbyn look bad, when he went above his head to look more Remainy, you know, that didn't fucking convince these people that Labour and, and the left was, was on their side. The interview of Alistair Campbell, like, an appalling thing, you know, and especially some of the things he said, he doesn't think Tony Blair is a war criminal. Like, really? Fundamental issues of principle. Also, this didn't occur to me until just now when I was editing this, but if John McDonnell made a mistake by doing a pally interview with the war criminal Alistair Campbell, then of course Owen Jones did very much the same thing. I mean, as somebody else put it to me, the difference really is that there was potentially, not in the end, but there was possibly, you could see how McDonnell may have thought there was more to be electorally gained by his sit down with the war criminal than by Owen Jones's which would have had negligible benefits to the left, but perhaps benefits to his professional standing. So, Owen can be very forthright in his criticisms of Jeremy Corbyn, but I'm just not interested in a book that hero-worships John McDonnell, if indeed that is what it does, and makes out that he's this infallible, heroic figure. When that was devastating to me, reading in Left Out, of the actual strain put on Corbyn and McDonald's relationship because of the way that McDonald kind of just tried to pursue his own strategy that at every turn just gave the impression that the establishment were correct in their criticisms of Corbyn, that this is how it should be done. And if McDonald did think that Corbyn was a goner and he planned to run for the leadership and defend the left, although I suspect it would have been an agenda to the right of Corbyn's, given how close he'd become with the PLP. You know, that would have been, I I think, more defensible if he was going to be the standard bearer afterwards. But, you know, maybe MacDonald feels a little more sanguine about his own mistakes than some who exalt him as this 
practically infallible figure. Because he did say after the 2019 election, this is on me. You know, if anyone has to take responsibility for this, this is on me. And I'm, you know, I'm glad him and Corbyn were speaking at a rally together. I'm sure it was over Zoom. But like, I, I, I you know, I really hope that they, they have repaired one of the greatest friendships in, in politics. But Corbynism did not win because of these moves towards electability. So, so was it really worth sacrificing his relationship with his oldest friend in politics? For what? It's one of those things where, for some reason, everything Corbyn and Seamus Milne did is a oh, terrible, terrible, like, misguided error. They're these fucking idiots. But, like, obviously, Andrew Fisher and John McDonnell pure as the driven snow in everything they did and you know i don't like i say i've got no experience of this office politics as owen has said to people who've expressed uh, apprehension about his book you know oh i'm not as well i'm not as well connected as he is i wouldn't be able to write a book with as many sources or whatever but it's almost like just the way that, that this narrative is being spun it's making me want to come out and really and really stick up for seamus mill I, I, you know, I've never met, I've never spoken to, but is somebody I admire tremendously, and I admire him for all the shit that he's taken over the last couple of years, and reading Left Out, it almost makes, it's very fair to him actually, the book, and it makes me, that makes me suspect that he talked to the authors anonymously, Carrie Murphy did on the record, so her side of the story is in there as well, and you know, I almost suspect that in this book by two journalists, fairly hostile to the Corbyn project, it'll be a fairer and more balanced account in, in in a lot of ways in terms of the frictures within Corbynism than Owen Jones's will be. And, that, and, that, and that's fair, you know, he's an opinion writer. His writing is his opinions. And, you know, if that is journalism, whatever people say, I'm still interested in his side of the story, but not if it is just this kind of... That was the thing in the George Eaton interview that pissed me off. I've always respected how, you know, Owen always, like, he kind of puts aside, like, just a little sentence in his columns, like, the unfairly maligned Seamus Milne. Like, he, he says, like, Seamus is a decent man and so on. But then it's like, apparently George Eaton's read the book, I haven't, but George said in the article that Owen is sharply critical of Seamus Milne and he's just like kind of very dismissive in how he's quoted in the article. You know, he was used to writing newspaper columns, not running an efficient operation. And it's all like, well, <laughs> you know, that's literally what you do, man. Like your strategic advice is, <laughs> is no better than his. Look, I can see the disk space ticking away, but you know, I think New Socialist, maybe it will come under a bit more pressure because Owen has really gone on the attack over it. I think it, you know, I think it's a shame. He says uh, he won't uh, associate with New Socialist anymore because of the lack of integrity. That was it, integrity. I've been careful to caveat that I respect a lot of what he does, but that's, you know, fucking ridiculous coming from someone who works at the fucking Guardian. You know, a publication that in the last five years has waged a war against socialism, has softened its coverage of international affairs and security services stuff to basically be far more compliant, much like the strategy advocated by Jones with 
Keir Starmer, the statesman in the Labour Party. I just, I think that's really fucking rich. Again, it, it kind of comes back to a thing of who gets the benefit of the doubt. The Guardian run countless fucking articles, you know, by fucking sex pests. And well, I suppose that's the observer. In fact, more hostile to the left than the Guardian, who Andrew Fisher <laughs> was talking to immediately after this article in a small left-wing publication uh, appeared, which is interesting. You know, there's just all kinds of absolute shit published uh, in the guardian including the kind of transphobic bile that owen rightly fights against every day new socialist there is no comparison it is in no way as ethically morally compromised in any way as uh, you know the paper of manchester mill owners so i mean you know that is an outrageous kind of thing to say and frankly the oh sorry uh, tom williams i can't talk to you because your co-editor told me to leave them alone yeah that's pathetic it really is you know it's been a sad affair and i've despaired over it because this is a point of view expressed in that new socialist article that needs to be heard and you know i absolutely stand by it myself and i think new socialists should be proud that they're giving voice to a very real constituency on the left who are feeling underrepresented in the mainstream of discussion in this country right now, particularly by the left's own representatives. Oh, and Geraint and I are going to do a proper episode on Left Out. I think I may have said that, but we're going to... we That'll be on the way, trust me. We did record a little bit on it before, but I mean, I have to listen back to the recording and see how well it's dated, because it might be a bit out of date now. But anyway, much love. Peace out. <laughs>